So once again, thank you for everybody being here tonight and everybody listening on the podcast channel. A quick recap from last week. Uh, last week we talked about the Ark. The Ark has many names, the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of God, and this, this symbolized the throne of God and the focus of God's presence being with his people. That's last week, so this week we're going to continue with that. We're going go to go look at Exodus 26 and 27, right? And we're going to continue with that line of thinking, and we're going to look at the tabernacle, right? So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to Exodus 26. Now, the next two chapters, they're going to describe in detail the tabernacle, the curtains, the altar, the courtyard, the lampstands, how they're built, where, what they're to be made of, and how they are to be used, right? So while we're going to read through some of it, we're not going to read through all of it, what we're going to focus on, why is God doing this in the first place? Why are we having each of those things? What are they going to accomplish? What are they for, right? What's the, what's the tabernacle supposed to do? What does it represent, right? I mean, if we think about it, the Israelites, at this time, they're nomads in the desert, right? That's what's going on. That's a lot of work. We're building something, taking it down, carrying it somewhere else, putting it back up for a short while, then taking that down, carrying it somewhere else to keep going all the time and doing this. So why? Why would God put them through that? Why would he ask them to do that? What is each piece for? Why are we doing this, right? That's what we want to focus on tonight as we look at this material. So for starters, let's jump into Exodus 26, uh, verse 1. And let's go uh, verse 1 all the way to verse 6. This is what it says. Make the tabernacle with ten curtains of finely twisted linen and blue and purple scarlet yarn with cherubim woven into them by a skilled worker. All the curtains are to be the same size, 28 cubits long and four cubits wide. Join five of the curtains together and do the same with the other five. Then make 50 gold clasps and use them to fasten the curtains together so that the tabernacle is a unit. So for starters, what is the word tabernacle? Because we don't use that word anymore, or you know, very little. Well, the word tabernacle simply means to dwell. It's a dwelling place, right? And this dwelling place is not meant for humans. God wasn't saying, build this tabernacle for yourselves. He's saying, this is where I'm going to dwell among you. I'm going to be with you. So another way to think of that is this is the place where God, who is holy, is coming to meet people who are sinful, right? Heaven and earth coming together, right? And this is very important because if we were already holy, if we were holy, there's no reason to have this barrier between God and us. He could simply walk right in here, no problems whatsoever. We could all experience him in his greatness, but that is simply not possible, right? God even tells us in Exodus 33, verse 20, no one can see my face and live. That's a heavy, pretty duty statement when you think about it, right? You cannot see his face and live. He is that holy. We are that sinful. There has to be a separation, basically for our own protection. All right, think about it when Adam and Eve, when they sinned for the first time, I don't want to knock anything over back here, when they sinned for the first time, were they allowed to stay in the Garden of Eden? No, absolutely not. They were kicked out. And an angel with a flaming sword, not any sword, look it up, a flaming sword, <laughs> that's heavy duty, right, was placed at the entrance to guard the entrance so that they or no one else could come in that way, Right? God was deadly serious about sin. We are, we are separated from him. He is so holy, we are not. There must be the separation between us. We cannot be in his presence as sinful beings and live. So what does God do? God then eventually gives us the law. 
The law begins to show us our sin. This is what the law does. It's in Romans 3, 20. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sights by the works of the law. Here's the important part. Rather, through the law, what's it say? We become conscious of our sin. The law teaches us, shows us that we're sinful, right? So that's what the law does. The law begins this process to show, to prove to us that we are in fact sinful. Right? Everybody here is sinful, nobody's perfect, right? Yeah. So after the law is given, the people, they begin to see with their own eyes. They begin to realize it, that they are sinful. So then, then God begins this process of creating a way for him and his people to start to come together again, to meet, right? But even then, as we go farther into this and we look at all the different areas of the tabernacle, as we study this in Exodus, we're going to see that they all cannot come near to God. Not just anyone can get close. There's still strict rules, strict things they have to do. More specifically, the tabernacle has specific sections that only certain people are allowed to go. Each one of those areas have a purpose. Now, to get back to the description that God gave during the tabernacle, he said the curtains are all to be the same size, 28 cubits long and 4 cubits wide. Anybody got a tape measure with cubits on it? That is hard to come by these days, right? A cubit, it's an ancient unit of measurement, and I had to look this up. I knew it once, but I had to look. It's actually the measurement of your elbow to the tip of your middle finger. So obviously that's going to be exactly the same for every person, right? Everybody in here has the exact same. Yeah. It's a general rule, but that's roughly what it's supposed to represent. So the size of the curtains, if you do the math, they would have been about 40 feet long, about 5, five feet 8 inches tall, right? And all these curtains were going to be connected. Right? So here's a picture of what that might have looked like. Let's go to our next slide. If you can kind of see that. So we have all kinds of stuff here. We're going to get into that. Now in verses 7 through 9, God's going to go into more detail about the curtains. This is what it says. Make curtains of goat hair for the tent over the tabernacle, 11 altogether. All 11 curtains are to be the same size, 30 cubits long and 4 cubits wide. Join five of the curtains together into one set and the other, and into the other six set. Fold the sixth curtain double at the front of the tent. Now, the reason, the reason God is so particular is that the tabernacle is going to be a place where he is going to meet his people, right? where the holy comes close to the sinful. Now, in our eyes, that may not seem like necessarily that big a deal at the moment, but what God is doing, what all this is for, is he's laying the groundwork for our eventual Redemption, right? That's what's coming. And this, this tabernacle that people are to build, it needs to be sturdy. It needs to be portable. Let's be honest. They're in the desert. They're going to carry it with them. Anybody know how long they were in the desert for, roughly? Forty long time. Anybody lived in a tent for 40 years? Let alone picked it up and move it periodically? That's what they're going to have to do, Right? So what God's doing is giving them very specific instructions to protect them and also at the same rate to do this right. Now at this time, we do want to jump ahead a little bit. We're going to go to verses 33 and 34 because this is where the important information really starts to come in. Let's read that now. God says, hang the curtain from the clasps and place the ark, uh, place the ark of the covenant law behind the curtain. So behind it, the curtain will separate the holy place from the most holy place. Put the atonement cover on the Ark of the Covenant Law in the most holy place. 
So this is really, this is, now we're getting down to the meat of what's going on. Like, and, and what we just read has real significance. And first, we talked about the curtain. The curtain literally, rep, literally and physically, you know, it represents that separation between us and God. It's not, it's not a flimsy little curtain that you can kind of see through. Oh, I think I can see him over there. There's the ark. It's, just, it's solid. You cannot do that, right? So it represents this real separation. God's going to make this his dwelling place on the inside, but it's still going to be very separate. And the object directly on the other side of this curtain is going to be the Ark of the Covenant that contains the law. Now, the word covenant literally means it's an agreement, right? A legally and binding ingredient, agreement between two parties. So the Ark was a specially made vessel to hold the covenant between God and his people, the agreement. And within the ark is the law. The law from God shows us our sin and how we're to live, right? So another way to think of this is that it's literally, we are first agreeing that we're sinful, right? The law shows us that. And then we look to God for redemption. So now you think of this, while, the, while Hollywood and the general public loves this idea with the ark of the covenant. Remember Indiana Jones? It's cool, it's gold, woo, everybody go find it, right? The entire concept of the Ark of the Covenant means we are sinful. We have made a legally binding agreement with God to get better. And that's what that represents. That's what this is all about. That's in a nutshell, right? And so in these verses, we see how much value God is placing on that. The covenant, it's special, it's holy. The Ark, the law are not to be left out in the open. Like, uh, what is it in the Washington Monument? You can go up and you can rub Lincoln and different things like that. This is not like that. This is not something you can, ever, you can take home and put on your mantle. This is holy. It's to be kept separate. And it's actually, it's an object of our admission of our guilt. That's what this is. That's what this is about. And God is protecting this for our benefit. The next part of the verse tells us the curtain was going to separate the holy place from the most holy place and put the Ark of the Covenant there, put it in that spot. So to recap, there's this place outside, and we're going to look at that in a second, where the general public can go. We're going to see it and Then there's another spot where it's more holy, and then even we're going to go further to the most holy place, right? So let's look at this again. Go to the next picture. So out here is where the, all of us people can kind of hang out, right? It's safe. Then you go to the inside, and that's where you get to the altar, some other stuff. And this is where the priests go. So you're stepping up in holiness. When you go further in there, that's where you're getting to the most holy place in there. So again, this is all very stepwise. Now here's another picture. Let's look. So once you get inside, that's the priest. This is where the, the lampstands we're going to read about and the table. There's some stuff. And then there's a further, another curtain. And what do you see behind that? The Ark of the Covenant. The holy of holies, the most holy place, right? So each area has a purpose, and each area takes you one step closer to God. Its holiness increases the whole time. Now, where the ark is in the Ark of the Covenant, that's the holiest place, and only the high priest can go there. Once a year, for very short periods, after special clothes, special washing, a whole big deal. But if you, and now if you think of it going out, way out here is the least holy, the general public, and each step, again, it takes you closer. And the altar, we're going to get to that next. Let's go to Exodus 27, verse 1 to 8. 
Now we're going to get into the altar animal sacrifice because this is also very important in this whole process of our redemption, right? Exodus 27, 1 to 8. Build an altar of acacia wood, three cubits high. It is to be square, five cubits long and five cubits wide. Make a horn at each of the four corners so that the horns and the altar are of one piece and overlay the altar with bronze. Make all, the uten- make all its utensils of bronze, its pots to remove the ashes, its shovels, sprinkling bowls, meat forks, and fire pans. Make a grating for it, a bronze network, and make a bronze ring at each of the four corners of the network. Put it under the ledge of the altar so that it's halfway up the altar. Make poles of acacia wood for the altar and overlay them with bronze. The poles are to be inserted into the rings so that they will be on two sides of the altar when it's carried. Make the altar hollow out of boards. It is to be made just as you were shown on the mountain. So when we really get into this, we see God, he's being ultra specific about everything. Again, it's supposed to be hollow. Why? They're going to be carrying it everywhere they go. They, can, they, can't, they can't build this huge, solid structure they're never going to be able to move. It needs to be hollow. And he's specific. This is how wide. This is how tall. This is what you do. He states it's to be made of acacia wood, which is a very durable wood. So let's look at this next picture. This is an artist's rendering, there you go, of what it would have looked like. So you have the poles, it's square, the horns on either side, and you have the implements for putting the animal on there. Okay. So now I want to pause for a moment, and let's talk about animal sacrifice so we understand what it is, where it came from. Now, interestingly, the first time the Bible... First time the Bible describes an animal being used for something other than food, it's in Genesis 3:21. And this is what it says. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Clothed them. So in this case, even though Adam and Eve sinned, they brought sin into the world, God is still going to provide for them. They had been naked, they never even noticed, but now that they've sinned, now they've noticed and they're being kicked out of the garden of Eden into the world. They're going to experience weather hot, cold temperatures, they're going to be working, and they're going to be experiencing the reality of life outside from God. So what God did is a form of protection. He takes an animal or animals and uses their skin. He kills them, uses their skin to make protective garments for animals. The life of the animal is taken to benefit Adam and Eve. Now, a little further in time, the next time, Noah and his family, when they exit the ark after the flood, Noah takes some of the clean animals and he sacrifices them to God. Genesis 8 describes this, and it says the smell was pleasing to the Lord. So in this case, the animals that were sacrificed were offered as a thanks to the Lord for his protection. Now, as time goes on, remember this is going to start, all start coming together. As time goes on, God starts to bring in the law, right? And sacrifices begin to change a little bit, and they become the atonement for sin. Think about it. without Before the law, there was no knowledge of sin. Did Adam and Eve know what the law, did they have the Ten Commandments? Did Noah and them have the Ten Commandments? They did not. It came later. And now we know the law, Moses and the Israelites do. And when they broke the law, they had to do something to make up for that, to atone for their actions, for their sin. And interestingly, the setup for the tabernacle actually reflects this. If you think about it, the time period before the law was given represents the area outside of the tabernacle where anybody can go, right? Anybody can go. It doesn't matter who you are, what you've done. You can hang out there. You're totally safe. 
But each time you go in further, you go up in holiness. And that space outside, sin exists. Once inside the courtyard, that's where the law brings knowledge of sin. So this is where you see the, uh, the altar for sacrifice, right? You're, you're taking a step up. But that only allows for sin to be um, atoned for uh, temporarily. But it does allow us to get a little closer to God. And as you take this road of sin, and you get better and better, regular sacrifices atone for the sin, and you get closer, it eventually does lead you to the Holy of Holies. But even then, not all people can go there. Only the high priest can. One human can go where they previously could not. So the whole setup is meant to represent our redemption. And this is what Hebrews 9, Hebrews 9 verse 22 tells us. It's very cool. In fact, the law requires that near everything, nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, what's it say? There's no forgiveness. There is no forgiveness. Without sacrifice, our sin remains. So this, this was a state of affairs of humanity before Jesus Christ entered the world. And think about it. This is all the Israelites knew. Forget for a moment everything you know about Jesus Christ. All they knew was this system. They knew God was distant. He was holy. He was completely unapproachable in any way. Each time they sinned, they needed to sacrifice an animal to make up for that. Just that one sin. And they had to do it again and again. But thankfully, once Jesus came into the world, the whole system changed. I want to share another verse from Hebrews 9 because it really does a good job of describing what Jesus does, how he changed animal sacrifice. Hebrews 9, 11 to 12. But when Jesus Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say, is not part of creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. So what made Jesus' death so significant is he didn't do it with the help of anything we touched. Anything. Not the tabernacle. Because remember, all that stuff humans touched, right? Everything about that. He did everything on his own. He didn't require anything from human. Nothing out of creation. Nothing in this world would be enough, could help. You can't have, another way to think of it, you can't have sinful people build an ark that's going to work their own way out of salvation, right? That's not how it works. Only someone who is sinless, who can completely fill the law, can do that. That's why he didn't use anything in creation. There were no goats, there were no calves, no bulls, no animal. What he did, he shed his own perfect blood. And what he did, he was the, by doing that, he was the perfect sacrifice for all time. That's why, here's what's cool. That's why after he died on the cross, what happened to the temple curtain in Jerusalem? Tore in two from top to bottom. Tore in two. There was no longer that separation between God and his people. It was not there. Tore because the debt was paid once and for all. So all these instructions that we're reading about the curtains needing to be a certain size, all the whatever, all the stuff here, sewn together, do this, do that, do that. When it tore in two, it meant all of that was null and void. 100%. There was no more separation between God and us. There was no more temple courtyard. There was no more section the public can go to, and then the priest here, and then the high priest here, and then here only once a year, right? All of that 
was done. The law was fulfilled. And now, now the focus becomes focusing, get everybody focusing on Jesus Christ. That's why his death was so significant. Yes, he totally saved us, but he also fulfilled the plan. He completed the work that God started with Moses and the Israelites a long time ago. Now, the last part of our, that we want to look at from Exodus 27 is verses 20 and 21. This is what it says. Command the Israelites to bring you clear oil of pressed olives for the light so that the lamps may be kept burning. In the tent of the meeting, outside the curtain that shields the ark of the covenant law, Aaron and his sons are to keep the lamps burning before the Lord from evening until morning. This is to be a lasting ordinance among the Israelites for the generations to come. Now, this is actually really cool. So I want to make sure we all get what's happening. Inside the tent, if you think of that one slide we saw, um, inside the tent, there would have been no light. It would have been completely dark. That's how they intended it to be, right? The curtains, the covering, all that stuff, again, they weren't made of flimsy material that sand and dust and light can get through. It was completely dark in that area. They were meant to be sturdy, long-lasting, and to completely cover, isolate everything inside. The only light that you would have seen if you walked into that space would have been the light from the lamps, right? And so when God, when he commands for olive oil to be used, it came from what's called the first press. That meant when the olives were gathered and stacked on top of each other and piled on top, it was simply the weight of that is what compressed them. And then the oil that comes out of that first press is very pure. It's very clean, right? And then what happens in the second, third press they start putting weight, rocks, other things on top of it, and they start to smash it down to get the rest out. And as they smash it, bits of olive come out, leaves, other things. So it's not as pure. So what God wanted was the first press, the pure oil, and that was what was to be used to burn the lamps. It was very high-quality oil. And that's, that was the whole point. God only wanted the purest, best oil to be used. Now, in modern times, we don't have a good visual of that because we don't actually do that a whole lot. But in the New Testament, in 2 Corinthians... Paul actually uses a metaphor that refers to this, what life can be like for Christians, right? And this is what he says in 2 Corinthians 4. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 8. We are hard-pressed on every side, but what? We're not crushed. So what he's talking about is we, like the first press, in life you are going to be pressed on all sides. It happens. But God doesn't allow it to be crushed, to be destroyed in the process, right? So that's a metaphor that when he wrote that, everyone back then would have totally understood that lingo. We don't get it as much because we don't. Anybody here make olive oil at home? No? Yeah, me neither. So, but that's what, what <laughs> public says good olive oil. So what he's saying is God is there to help us no matter what. But by preserving us, by keeping us strong, we can be that light for others because that's where this is heading. Now, the last part of the verse from Exodus 27 tells us that the lamps with the olive oil, they were to be kept lit at all times, right? And keeping those lit, those lamps lit, was one of the jobs of Aaron and his sons. They were the priests. Now, this also reference, references the future work of Jesus Christ. Once inside that tent, or even in the temple in Jerusalem that they eventually built, again, it would have been completely dark. Right? And this is not like being a little bit dark. Look, if we turned out the lights here, everybody could still see somewhat. It would have been completely black in there. All the light, external light would have uh, went out. Now, this is where it gets interesting. As I've talked about before, 
in other sermons, you guys know you could actually walk up here after the service and you're not going to be struck dead, right? There's no physical barrier. You can actually, it's completely safe, right? In the tabernacle, in the temple in Jerusalem that they eventually built, it was not like that. There was an area of the temple. If you went in there, what would happen? You would die. You would be struck dead. Can you imagine, just go there with me for a minute, imagine if you were in the temple, inside, and the lamps went out of oil. It's completely dark. And there's an area, look, I just bumped that, a few feet away, if you accidentally got turned around, and you could die. Think about the, the, the healthy fear you would have to have for the entire area. This was no joke. This was real. What if you're in there and it took a while to get more to get it lit, relit and come back? Because the point again is Jesus had not yet died on the cross, where he was once and for all that sacrificial lamb. Getting too close to the area when you were sinful could cost you your life. God was still very distant, and the punishment was very, very real if you went too close to where you weren't supposed to. So again, being in that area was very serious. But just for a moment, let's, let's consider it uh, from another angle. Like, let's imagine what it would have been like to only have the law and animal sacrifice. Like, for a moment, forget everything you know about Jesus Christ. Just let it roll, right? Imagine living in their time period. Okay, so we have the law. We have the Ten Commandments. We know the stuff we can't do, right? And some of it's punishable by death. It's pretty serious, Right? How do you get to heaven? I'm asking you a very real question. How? Okay, so what? So say I do a good job of keeping, let's say I do nine and a half commandments really well. It's like what, an A, B plus at least? Am I getting in? It doesn't tell you, does it? Do you know? You don't. So let's say, let's say, okay, I do something I shouldn't have. I offer an animal sacrifice. Am I good now? Am I getting in now? What happens if I go by the animal on the way there and I have a heart attack and die? But the point is, you don't know, do you? And I mean that. What would it be like to live in that scenario and have an area of the temple you can't get that close to or you would die? See, we have absolutely no concept of what it was like for them. None. That's like when I try to describe my kid what it's like when I didn't have a cell phone or computer. That is so hard for them to get a hold of. Just does not make sense. I mean, there's just no, it's almost like they don't believe it for a second. No, like really, you had a phone, right? You had one. It was nothing. You just were out, yeah. Are you, showing, you ever show them video games from like the 80s? They're like, there's just no way. There's no way this is real. This is a joke, right? <laughs> and you see, this, this is why G, what Jesus did, this is why it's so profound. This is why it's so huge, right? Just literally top to bottom, nothing was the same. Absolutely nothing. Now let's keep that, stay right there. Keep that in mind. Let's look at John chapter 8, verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, What? I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. 
Just like the lampstands that lit up the temple when it was completely dark, Jesus lights up the world. He took away all that doubt, all that fear of what's hap- what could happen. Well, I don't know. Are you going to? Ha- I don't know. He took that all away. And here's the most, this is the most real example. I mean, physical. Anybody want to be a volunteer and come up here and touch this? We'll see what happens. You know 2,000 years ago before Jesus, you couldn't do that. What would happen? You die. Because of Jesus, what can you do? You can walk anywhere in the city of Jerusalem, even where the temple used to be, and you know what will happen? Nothing. Think how, that's a physical, real change each one of you can experience. That, that's what happened because of Jesus Christ. There were stories, there was a man who actually touched the ark. He thought it was going to, were, they weren't carrying it the right way. It was on a wagon, it was going to fall. He reached out with good intentions to try to touch it and stop it. What happened to him? He died. Your sin before Jesus was so repulsive, if you got too close to God or the Ark of the Covenant, it cost you your life. But because Jesus died on the cross, that sin was permanently removed. And again, it's hard to find a more obvious visual reminder than you can walk anywhere in any church, including in Jerusalem. Go to the ancient place where it was on the Temple Mount. You'll be fine. And so then, as the story continues, our job as people who believe in Jesus Christ, his disciples, is to continue that process, to be that light for others, to share that news with people who don't have hope. So when you think of the, la- the lampstands lighting up that dark sanctuary, that t- today we are that light. We have that light of G- because of Jesus Christ. And he specifically mentioned this. This is what he said. It's in Matthew 5, 14 to 16. Write this down, star it, whatever. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill that cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand so it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see the good things you do. And glorify God. It means realize that God is real. You're the light of the world. Now with that statement, Jesus makes two things very, very clear. Number one, we have been given an immense, beautiful gift that just has incredible value to this world. As followers, we possess that. Even if days you don't realize it, you got it. Right? And number two, that gift comes with responsibility. He said, look, you don't take that bad boy and put it back in the corner and put something on it. What do you do? You put it where? In the middle. Let it go. That's what it's supposed to do. That's the whole point. That's what the point always was. So where we are now, this church, we are the extension of what we're talking about thousands of years ago. It's the reason for the law. It's the reason for the temple, the sacrifices, the altar, all this, the curtain that kept us separate. All those things showed the world they were sinful. All those things directed people to look inward. And when the time was right, God sent Jesus Christ to fulfill everything, to fulfill the law, to be that sacrifice once and for all. 
And this is the reason that we shine today. It's the reason that we have hope. So as you go about your day, when you leave here, no matter what happens to you, you know, you need to know that you are saved, you are loved, you are forgiven. You have hope. You have hope that other people wish they had. I have a friend who's Buddhist. I have a friend who's Muslim. And we have conversations. And, I, and one of the things that I brought up, I said, how do you know what's going to happen to you? I mean, how do you know? When you really get down to it, they can't answer. Well, if I'm good enough. Well, okay, well, what, what, how, where's the grade? Like, this is heaven, right? What's the grade to get into heaven? Well, it's an A. Well, what are you? Well, I'm an A. How do you know that? The silence. Your standard? How do you know that for a fact? They can't answer that. We know. We know. That's what makes the difference. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Father, tonight we learned. We learned about the tabernacle, the altar, the ark, and most importantly that we are sinful. Let us, each one of us, never forget the reason you started this thousands of years ago. Let us always be reminded that we owe you everything. And because of your son, we are saved. Father, we thank you for your patience, your understanding, your mercy. It's because of you, we have hope, we have joy. We thank you, we thank you for all you've done for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.